This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. Greetings and welcome to the New Books Network, the New Books and Art channel. My name is Kirsten Ellsworth, and today I have the privilege of speaking with Rachel Berenson Perry, who is the author of the Life and Art of Felrith Hines, From Dark to Light, published by Indiana University Press and the Indiana Historical Society Press in 2018. Rachel, I'd like to welcome you to the podcast. Hi. And um, it's Thank really you. nice to have you today. Yes. Thank you for having me. It's, it's our pleasure. Um, maybe we could start by asking you who was Felrath Hines and what motivated you to pursue this project? Um, Felrath Hines, his actual full name is Samuel Felrath Hines. He lived from 1913 to 1993, to give it a little context. And he was an artist first and foremost, and he uh, became the first African-American chief conservator for the for the Smithsonian's National Portrait Gallery, and later the Hirshhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden. Um, I first saw a painting by Felrath Hines. I was the fine arts curator for the Indiana State Museum from 2003 to 2012, and we had a painting in our collection called Arctic. And the more I looked at it. Uh, the more impressed I was. It was very subtle with the color tones quite close to one another and also playful. It had geometric shapes that uh, were quite unexpected. So I appreciated this painting. And then uh, about six years later, I was uh, the, the widow of Felrath Hines got in touch with me because she was distributing the entire collection of his work to museums throughout the nation. And I had the opportunity to choose uh, four more paintings from his collection, which I tried to do. I tried to choose pieces from different time periods in his career. But at that time, um, his widow, whose name is Dorothy Fisher, uh, asked if I would be interested in writing a biography, and I was much too busy at the time. But later on, many years later, actually, in 2014, I got back in touch with her and asked if uh, she was still interested. And she said, yes. So that's when the project started uh, of writing a biography. So we just learned that it it's four years work into this book of research plus your early knowledge of Heinz, right? That's right. And all kinds of access to archives and 
uh, for those who are listening, the book is so richly detailed and the evidence of the research is so strong. You will learn more about Bellrath Hines than you would imagine when you read the book. And fortunately, fortunately, his widow um, and his family had uh, really carefully kept great archival material, including photographs, and um, had inventoried the collection extremely well and taken shots of all the paintings. So, um, and also had a, a book of of every exhibit that he had been in and every newspaper article that had been written about him. So all of that kind of thing was taken care of. The, the part that was more challenging was finding out personal information about Felrath Hines. He never wrote about himself and uh, his personal life was much more difficult to research. And I really had to rely on interviews with people who had known him. So I, actually interviewed probably about 60 people. Well, speaking of his personal life, um, would you tell us a little bit about his start? I, I know he, um, he starts in Indianapolis, Indiana, and ends up at the Heron School of Art. Maybe you could give us a sense of the landscape of Indianapolis at that time for an African-American artist like Belrath. So Indianapolis and the... Um, well, it would have been in the teens and 1920s um, and actually into the 1930s, was known as the northern city, most like southern cities, in its attitudes and customs um, regarding blacks. So African Americans were not, were very much discouraged from patronizing downtown stores, uh, restaurants, they weren't um, welcome in theaters. And, of course, the housing was extremely segregated. However, one of the things in Indianapolis that happened because of this um, segregation was the neighborhood surrounding Indiana Avenue um, developed a distinctive black culture around music. So it was around jazz, ragtime, and blues. There's a big scene there, um, and during its peak in the 1930s, early 1930s, I'd say there were as many. There were more than 300 black-owned businesses, including the Madam Walker Theater and Beauty Shop, which has national fame, and all of those businesses lined Indiana Avenue. So most of the blacks, including Felrath Hines, did not have to go into areas of the city where they weren't welcome. So the John Heron Art Institute, um, actually Felrath got a scholarship to attend the Saturday classes, and he probably was about 13 when he had that opportunity. So John Heron Art Institute um, had an open-door policy since 1902. And really the... The positive reinforcement that Fel, Felrath, or as many people call him Fel, had in his life was from doing art projects. He got a prize for a soap sculpture, and then, of course, the scholarship to Heron. But perhaps um, a greater influence on his character, besides being raised 
in a two-parent household, which was, well, of course now is, is rather uncommon, was his graduation from Crispus Attucks High School. And this was a new high school that opened in 1927 for blacks only. It was part of Indianapolis, the city's giant step backwards, um, because they actually had integrated high schools before that. And the person who was the first um, principal of that school, a guy named Nolcox, um, really um, surprised everyone in Indianapolis by insisting that this school become uh, a, a school for college-bound people, and he encouraged self-reliance and initiative. And so as a result of his efforts, um, the school uh, boasted students later that became professors and scientists, and there was an opera singer, um, Angela Brown, Major General Harry Brooks, who was the first black general, and the Tuskegee Air, Airman Charles DeBow, among many others. So he, here we have this invigorating high school experience, and then the study at the at the Heron uh, School, and then Hines he goes to Chicago, and what um, we're I guess the question I'm thinking about now is we have an artist, and then we have a person who becomes a conservator. Right. Can you tell us a little bit about what a conservator does, and then how that can that uh, thread of his artistic interest started to develop after he left Indianapolis. So a conservator so, is a, does um, paintings restoration, and there's there's it's quite a science now. There are schools that you can attend to learn conser- painting conservation that are based on the science of um, the materials used. But one of the main um, ideals of conservation, I still, I believe is still one of the ideals of conservation, is to never do anything to a painting that can't be reversed. In other words, if you're painting in something, if you're replacing something that's maybe a, something that some paint that's chipped off and you replace that, you would put a layer of something, some kind of varnish underneath that, so that could be removed. Um, if the time came when maybe conservation methods would be more advanced. So Heinz was really good at uh, creating opportunities for himself. And after he left Chicago um, in 1946, he went to New York City and he eventually apprenticed himself to the best frame maker in New York City, Robert Kulik, who um, invented these metal and float frames that were designed for large abstract paintings. And he was used by all of the prominent artists of the 50s and 60s, people like uh, Motherwell, Franz Klein, William de Kooning, and um, Heinz was very meticulous and careful with everything he did, and he eventually became a manager of that frame shop. And all this time, he was meeting these artists, he was meeting gallery owners, he was he was um, meeting all of the people in the art world in New York. And he met this guy named 
St. Francis, I'm sorry, St. Francis, St. Julian Fishburn, who was a paintings conservator um, and also taught at the National Academy of Design. And he, um, it kind of sparked the idea in his head that maybe paintings conservation would be something that he would enjoy doing. And he eventually apprenticed himself to Fishburne, who then introduced him to Sheldon and Carolyn Keck, K-E-C-K. And um, the Kecks were real movers and shakers in the conservation world. They founded the Conservation Center of the Institute of Fine Arts at um, New York University in 1960. But this was before that time um, when Fell was working with the Kecks. They um, had a contract with the Museum of Modern Art. And there was a big fire um, in the spring of 1959, which really created a lot of opportunities for, for conservators. All this time while he was uh, apprenticing himself and learning the conservation business, um, Felrath Hines was always looking at art. He was always going to the MoMA shows to see people like Jasper Johns, Ellsworth Kelly, um, Hans Hoffman, and Jackson Pollock, who were uh, big at the time. Here he is in this really thriving New York milieu. Even just imagining that a person would be allowed to conserve a painting by Robert Motherwell, right? Right, right. Obviously, well-respected and trusted, and I know you spend some time in the book talking about this particular group, Spiral. Yes. And would you tell us a little bit more about that relationship? Um, in 1963, there were 14 artists that um, got together. They were all African-American. And it was kind of initiated by Romare Bearden, who was uh, one, of the, one of the known names at that time, and there were there were two other guys, Alvin Hollingsworth and Hale Wood, Hale Woodruff, who also um, had been in Indiana, and the group got together to discuss um, political and social issues. But um, I I wouldn't really say that Spiral influenced Hines as much as just um, providing a sense of camaraderie with the other black artists who were finding it um, difficult or impossible to connect with galleries and museums to show their work. And when Spiral first formed, um, several of the members talked about going to the March on Washington, but they didn't go as a group, although Falrath Hines did go. This would, would have been in 1963 in late August. And um, through his through Hines's acquaintance with Billy Strayhorn and Marion and Dr. Arthur Logan, he was also he was also acquainted with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Though he um, participated in the first and only spiral exhibition, um, which limited color palettes to black and white, um, Hines eventually stopped going to the meetings. He just felt like it lacked um, support systems from curators and galleries and really wasn't going anywhere. Um, so he didn't continue formally with Spiral, but he did uh, begin to refuse to participate in all black 
exhibitions. So in 1969, he picketed MoMA's Harlem on My Mind, which ironically didn't have any Harlem artists in it. And he also refused an invitation to Whitney's Contemporary Black Artists in America in 1970. The politics are so important of the time and for African-American artists, as we learn in your book. And um, one of the elements I found most intriguing was the role of abstraction in the political scheme of what an African-American artist was supposed to present or how an African-American artist was supposed to make art, maybe more on the representational side. And in the book, which has lavish illustrations, so much of his work is abstract. Could you talk to us a little bit about this issue of abstraction and expectations for the African-American artist that he experienced? Yeah, this was, I think, Heinz's um, real dilemma, especially in the 1960s and 70s, um, was his um, desire to make art beyond politics. He, he wanted to create art with a universal ideal and not with a political message. And um, there was a big uh, black art movement that developed in the early 1970s, um, and a division was created between artists who were creating non-objective or abstract artwork, um, which really was conforming to the international styles at the time, and artists who rejected traditional art school training and were using art to inspire black unity and respect. And so um, Heinz was really kind of caught between the two. He, he was unable to get a foothold in mainstream exhibitions Um, And he found himself being pigeonholed as an African-American artist when he really wanted to have his work judged on its own merit. Do you think he ever resolved this or maybe it just served as the creative tension, a creative tension, social tension? Well, I don't know if I would say resolved it. I don't think it's resolved yet. Yeah, I really think that um, even now there seems to be. I'm. I could be wrong, but there seems to, re, at least in this area, there seems to be a resurgence of interest in African American art or art made by blacks and African Americans. But it's it still has that tag on it, um, and Felrath Hines' work, even though after he died. There have been solo shows, and of course, with the big giveaway in 2009, there was there were a lot of smaller shows in museums that were showing off their new acquisitions of Felrath Hines paintings. He still isn't a household word, and he's still excluded. He's excluded both ways now. He's excluded from some um, African American shows, um, and then he's also still hasn't gotten his due, I don't think, um, as an abstract artist. I think that for those who are listening, just simply opening the book and looking at the work confirms exactly what um, 
Rachel just said, he does, he deserves to be in other contexts for sure. Exhibitions, books, and I, I'm so impressed by this book that fills the gap. And um, along those lines, if we can turn to the conservator side of the story again, and how here we have the first African-American man to become a conservator at the Smithsonian uh, Portrait Gallery, National Portrait Gallery. How did he get from New York to Washington, D.C.? And how did this position come about? So um, through the through Carolyn Keck, who was a friend of Georgia O'Keeffe, um, Heinz became Georgia O'Keeffe's exclusive conservator for several years. So he would actually go out to Abiquiu, New Mexico, and um, confer with her and work on her paintings. Some conservators now think that. Um, the paintings were over-conserved, if that's possible, um, because Georgia O'Keeffe had this, this uh, she, in her mind, she wanted her paintings to never um, deteriorate. So they were often treated before they needed any treatment. However, um, Heinz was, was uh, very much respected by Georgia O'Keeffe. And um, when the director of the Smithsonian's American Portrait Gallery, Marvin Sadik, was looking for a conservator, he consulted with George O'Keefe, and she said, as far as I'm concerned, the only one is, is, is Felrath Hines. So he um, got the job. He was offered the job in 1972, and he was very reluctant to leave New York City. But I think he recognized the opportunity and prestige of a job, um, of that job, chief curator of National Portrait Gallery, and really from a practical angle was attracted to the security and benefits of a government job. (laughs) Um, But his real aim was to support his own studio work. Um, So this was uh, a perfect opportunity to have the security and income to be able to support him renting an ideal studio to do his own work. I think the point about job security and having one's own studio, the both of those points are so valid for artists. And um, I know it throughout the book, there are some other interesting jobs. I'll leave it to readers to find out what those were that he had along the way um, of his career. Some of them were not as artsy as you would think. Um, and just, interesting to know about. I, I can't help but mention painting gold bands on dishware in yeah. factory. Yeah. <laughs> that he was obviously he worked very hard to make everything work here financially. And I'm I know that when he went to Wash from reading your book, when he was in Washington DC, he did have some contacts with the Washington Color School. And I wondered if you might talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so he really he did have contacts. He um he did know people of course from the Washington Color School. But he did not consider himself part of the Washington Color School. Um artists like uh, Alma Thomas who he knew and Jean Davis used color 
more like musical notes to break up the surface into patterns and rhythms. And um, Falrath Hines was more concerned with um, creating to creating space with color, if that makes any sense. It, his things were optical in a way, many of his paintings. Um, and when you look at his paintings, sometimes some colors recede and others come forward and sometimes the opposite. So he really wasn't making the surface into patterns and rhythms. He was using geometric forms. I think the way you just described his approach is really right on. And um, I think it's also notable that we learned throughout your book, he was always associated with the the trend or the artists or the, the interesting groups, but he always seems to have stayed his own course. Yeah. Um, yeah, he definitely was his own man. <laughs> and I also yeah. want to mention that this thing about um, apprenticing at Kulik Frame Shop and then apprenticing with the conservators, he, he really went through life creating opportunities for himself. He wasn't shy about, if he wanted to do something, finding the experts and then just working with them for free until he was respected enough to be able to earn an income from whatever he was doing. That is such a uh, that's such a, a position that an artist has to take in a lot of ways, right? Just to get to get ahead. And when I was reading the book, I got a sense of a strong personality and a person who also, I, I recall one anecdote worked and didn't, there was an anecdote in the book where he um, went to do the conservators work and didn't really talk too much with the other conservators. And when he was done, he left. So he was very work focused, it seems. Yes, he was extremely work focused. Um he he believed when he was at work he should be working, and so it was you know, he did have quite a few um, interns because by then by the time he was in Washington Carolyn Keck had this school going so she liked to um, recommend interns to send to practicing conservators and there were. Uh, some interns that got, got along well with him and others that didn't. Um, he didn't really have much of a sense of humor in the lab. Um, he didn't like joking around and being pals. Um, but if if you were there to learn and you were able to rise up to his perfectionist standards, <laughs> then um, then you got along well with him. That's a, a real uh, testimony to the power of teaching, because if he mentored future conservators who made it through his rules, um, that's critical in keeping the field of um, conservation alive, right? Well, definitely to keep the field of conservation honest, because there are um, <laughs> conservators that aren't professional and can do a lot of damage to paintings. One of my favorite photographs in the book is a photo of um, Fell just starting to look at one of Monet's large water lilies. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Just to imagine being the person who's going to handle the work 
it's it's really something. I mean, he it sounds as though that personality was necessary to do a good job. Um, yeah, that that the story of the Monet was is pretty funny because when the when the Monet the one of the large water lily Monets was first purchased by MoMA, they they were a hard sell. They did they really weren't selling that well. Um, there were very few places that could accommodate paintings that large. And when the fire happened in 1959 at MoMA, that that Monet burned up. <laughs> so the one that he was working on in that photograph was the second one <laughs> that they had gotten. Um, and so it, it did have a history with it. Oh, my goodness. Well, I, I hope everyone who's listening gets a sense of the uh, the details and the, the stories that are in the book about Felrath Hines and then all the associated um, characters and just the time period in which he worked. Um, if you had to give us your what you find are the most important takeaways from Hines' career and his art, uh, what what would you offer? Well, I keep emphasizing that um, he was an artist first and foremost. A lot of people want to um, give him his due as the first African-American con- paintings conservator, and I'm not sure that there are very many even yet. Um, and another thing, of course, is that he didn't want his art to be categorized. Um, he wanted it to be judged by its own merit. He really disliked being pigeonholed as a black artist. But in his personal life, he he seemed to always expect the best of others. And he was actually colorblind. He had many, many friends that were both black and white. And I think when you expect the best of someone, that oftentimes they'll rise to the occasion. Um, And I think he lived his life that way. He was very meticulous um, and careful about everything he did. Um, and through his artwork, I think he achieved a kind of a, a Zen state, if you will, a, or a calmness to overcome the tribulations of uh, being an African-American in America. He really he strove for balance and harmony through unbalanced compositions. And really, I think Jenny McComas, who is the 20th century art curator for the Eskenazi Museum here in Bloomington, Indiana, said it best. She said, while deeply committed to the struggle for civil rights, his abstract paintings signal that he has equally strong conviction that artists must be free to work in the manner they choose, regardless of societal expectations. That's powerful. and very evident throughout the book um, that the, the beliefs of Felreth Hines and I think your the significance, the way you've articulated it should really encourage listeners to read the entire story of his life. And I really want to thank you, Rachel, for coming to the podcast today and letting us know about this fascinating and important and overlooked artist and curator. Thank you. I really appreciated you um, having this podcast made.